Welcome to Estradi Illusions for a very, very special episode that was planned uh, a few hours ago. And those are always, uh, sometimes those are the best kind of episodes. And especially today is a landmark day. And we just had to do a broadcast because Supreme Court, defying uh, a lot of expectations, defying my expectations, uh, issued a landmark ruling protecting LGBTQ people from uh, being fired for simply being gay or transgender in the workplace. And I think a lot of us, especially with a 6-3 decision, are very shocked. And because we're shocked and because this is the Supreme Court and these are legal issues that are complex, we have a legal expert, an analyst. Uh, We have Colin Kalmbacher on here to talk with us. And he just wrote a uh, really good article, which we'll link to it, and I highly recommend reading it. Uh, either before the podcast, or uh, you can also probably listen to it while you're read it while you're listening. But uh, Colin, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, first of all, thanks for having me on, Ian. I really appreciate it. Um, I wasn't. Yeah, like you said, wasn't it? Wasn't expecting this. Uh, I, I got this assigned uh, just this morning, right when I kind of logged on for work. Uh, got the article out. Um, you reached out, and here we are. Um, so once again, thanks. Um, I have been working as an editor and reporter uh, slash legal analyst at LawAndCrime.com for. Gosh, close to well, three and a half, four years or so now, uh, at least as a permanent staff member. Uh, graduated from law school in Texas, passed the bar in Texas. I uh, currently have a um, kind of a, a small practice uh, doing pro bono work um, for people in Texas uh, when I can find time to uh, helping with uh, landlord tenant issues, smaller things like that, just to if, if anybody uh, needs help and I have the time. Um, and I also have an LLM, a legal master's degree uh, from Cardozo here in, uh, well, here. I live in Brooklyn. Uh, Cardozo is in Manhattan. So um, I have a master's degree there in uh, international law, focusing on uh, human rights, um, law, war, things along those lines. And at Law and Crime, I basically... I'm a legal journalist with uh, occasional analysis. Uh, the piece that we did today on the Bostock uh, case, uh, kind of a combination of both of those, uh, explaining the, like you said, landmark ruling uh, in favor of LGBTQ uh, rights, uh, which are now codified in federal law. Uh, the debate is settled. So the case Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, is actually three separate cases that are rolled together. Uh, If you're a transgender person listening, uh, the case of Amy Stevens versus uh, the uh, RG and GR Harris Funeral Homes, that's been a case that's been uh, going on for years. Amy Stevens sadly passed away recently, and uh, our thoughts are with her her and her family in this uh, time. But is that that fairly common for the Supreme Court to kind of uh, lump sort of similar cases together because the ruling was uh, applied to all three of them? Yeah, that's that's something that uh, happened actually more or less uh, the same term when they were hearing oral arguments. uh, And it's something that the Supreme Court does tend to do quite often uh, if there are, especially uh, because that's kind of how you uh, get landmark rulings like this is whenever there are different appeals courts and 
they have obviously different plaintiffs um, and different defendants um, in each uh, state um, or a series of states that are served by the same appeals court. And so uh, one appeals court will rule one way, another will rule another way, uh, yet another one or two uh, or three even sometimes will rule um, in a slightly different way. And that's kind of what happened here. There were three separate cases, as you mentioned. Um, two of them uh, interpreted federal civil rights laws as uh, protective of LGBTQ individuals. One of them did not. And the Supreme Court upheld those uh, two uh, prior decisions and uh, remanded what we say, basically told the other court, you were wrong, fix your work. So this case was uh, especially, I think, when... Uh if you look at just the the who's trending on Twitter, there were a lot of jaws that were dropped. This case, the uh, majority opinion was written by Neil Gorsuch, who is uh, really no no friend of the left. He's nobody would describe him as liberal. He replaced uh, arch conservative Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court, famously after Mitch McConnell uh, wouldn't hold a confirmation hearing for Merrick Garland. He was kind of the hand-picked, supposed to be the bastion of uh, conservative ideology, and yet he he and both he and John Roberts sided with the liberal wing of the court. Can you tell us a little bit about why that's significant? Yeah, so um, I guess from the get-go, the the whole the, the the posturing with uh, replacing Scalia with Merrick Garland which then became uh, after Obama refused to do a recess appointment and Mitch McConnell refused to hold a single hearing uh, replacing Merrick Garland with uh, Neil Gorsuch uh, has always kind of been I guess consumed by themes of criminal justice which of course isn't implicated here but um, a lot of legal analysts and experts and people in law school who were uh, discussing, or law schools, I should say, who were discussing these things as they were happening at the time, uh, which I believe was me, I could be wrong. Um, Merrick Garland is not known for being a criminal, a, a fan of criminal defendants, whereas Neil Gorsuch was more open to those types of arguments. And so... There was a bit of a push and pull that, uh, you know, kind of Obama wasn't really going very far to the left with his pick of uh, Merrick Garland. It was uh, kind of an appeasement uh, to the court's conservatives or rather the, uh, the conservatives in the Senate who would have been holding hearings and voting on him. But as you mentioned, Mitch McConnell decided not to do that at all. So Obama started in the middle and got nothing. Um, Gorsuch was supposed to be, again, as you mentioned, a kind of a basically a retread of Antonin Scalia, um, who was himself also fairly uh, open to uh, criminal uh, defendants on occasion. And so you, you had this prospect of a, a punitive law and order liberal replacing a, an occasionally pro-criminal defendant uh, arch conservative. And people were wondering, is that really going to swing the court much further to the left? It became a moot point after Gorsuch was appointed, and uh, so he's he's more or less followed in, a, in Scalia's footsteps in that regard. But this is kind of a surprise uh, for a lot of folks, um, though not particularly surprising for others because of the way that uh, I suppose you could say Gorsuch understands uh, this idea of textualism. Um, one of two major 
kind of conservative ideologies that are used to interpret statutes, the other being originalism. And essentially, these are two methods of uh, looking at what a law says and what it means and using uh, di- divination, essentially. That's, that's all judges really ever do. They, they kind of uh, explain away the way that they reach their political decisions, especially the Supreme Court. And so originalism and textualism are ways that typically conservatives will cabin their uh, explanations for why this law is actually conservative or why this liberal law has to fail. Um, they'll, they'll use these two frameworks. Gorsuch has, um, in, in kind of a almost, uh, I guess, like a, you might say, poking his conservative colleagues in the eyes opinion here, um, repeatedly referenced the language of textualism and used it to kind of say, you know what, textualism maybe isn't always just this conservative salve for interpreting the law. Um, sometimes you do take the text as it was written, uh, but the implications uh, when new facts come into the equation could be much different than what you thought they were, what, than even what the, uh, the Congress that passed the law thought it might have meant at the time that it was passed. And so that's, that's to me, not necessarily how uh, or that Gorsuch came to this opinion, but the way that he decided to frame this, uh, this, like you said, again, a landmark opinion. And that's, and that's actually kind of not really a term of art, but it's kind of a, a legal, legal term, especially uh, every student in law school who's in a constitutional law class. Let's say those were actually happening right now. Um, this kind of opinion would be the type of opinion that would basically throw all the syllabuses out the window. This is all you'd be talking about in law schools today. Um, again, if there were physical classes being held, which I don't think there are. So the, I'm actually really glad you explained all of the, the textualism and originalism. That was going to be my, my next question. (laughs) Kind of, yeah, sorry, I preempted you. I went, went off on a long one there. Well, it, it, it makes sense, and it's it's always kind of uh, interests me how Scalia has been. Re- he's he's often regarded as sort of this uh, icon of of both textualism and originalism. Now, um, I'll, I'll ask about the dissents in a bit, but as for as for the Gorsuch opinion, the text he he took a textualist reading to literally um, to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, specifically Title Seven. Uh, which deals with sex discrimination, and he applied a textualist reading of that to basically say, look, there's no way you can discriminate. There's no way a company can look at at, uh, discriminating against a uh, gay employee or a transgender employee without uh, without violating the Civil Rights Act via, you know, discriminating literally on the basis of sex, and he provides... A couple examples uh, within the opinion. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So in, in a sense, what he did was extremely simple. Um, and that's kind of what, what sort of underscores the just, you know, it, it might sound a little uh, heavy handed to talk about like the, the beauty of law or whatever, but occasionally lawyers do that. Um, and what he did was it was beautiful in its simplicity. Uh, if that what he did was he took Um, the defendants um, at their word and he used their definition. Um, 
he didn't dispute that whatsoever. Uh, he used a very basic definition of what sex means um, under the law, um, or which is mentioned in the law, rather. And he just went from there and said that essentially, if you are trying to fire someone simply because they are gay or transgender, then you are taking the person's sex into account. And you can't do that. It's like, a, yeah, I don't, I don't really know any other way than to put that. It, it's very simple. And that seems to have uh, really upset uh, his conservative colleagues, uh, particularly Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas. Um, because, of course, uh, oh, I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you ask the specific questions about the dissents. Don't want to preempt you again. But, um, yeah, there's... Right. Uh, well, I mean, you you described it as as painfully simplistic. Uh, what has has always kind of baffled me, and what I've what I've discussed with other people is is just really that this is about as simple as it gets. If if you take a gay employee and you fire them for being gay, you would essentially it, it's discrimination because you you wouldn't fire a woman for being in love with a man. Therefore, you can't fire a man for being in love with a man or else you are in fact discriminating against the man for being a man. That's, it, it seems obvious. It seems like we're, you know, stating the obvious. And yet for a lot of us who have been paying attention to that case or, uh, with Amy Stevens, there's no way uh, of discriminating against her for e even, even if you, even if you look at the, e even if you subscribe to the, uh, beliefs that, I mean, we don't know what's in Neil Gorsuch's heart of whether he believes that Amy Stevens is, in fact, a woman or whatnot. But he chose to uh, write as he he chose to really put his own views aside. At least it appears that way. Right. Of, I, I think I, I think I can try to explain what you're getting at. Um, there are certainly ways to read this opinion as uh, perhaps a bit retrograde in the way that it particularly. Uh, explains um, transgender people. Um, but like you said, we don't know what's in Neil Gorsuch's heart or how he feels about um, uh, the issue, uh, whether he is secretly a, a, a turf or something along those lines. Uh, it's immaterial to the law because what he had to work with and what the, uh, the five other justices who agree with him had to work with was this one part of one sentence in one federal law that says, and I'll just go ahead and uh, I'll just go ahead and read it. So to make it extremely clear, uh, it is unlawful for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or to discharge any individual or otherwise to discriminate against any individual with respect to their compensation, terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of such individuals, race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. And so they had to work with uh, the law that they were given. And again, just taking the, um, we'll, we can just call them this, taking the bigots' arguments uh, as they made them, they interpreted sex in a very basic uh, and legalistic way to mean that, yeah, these people were fired um, uh because, in part, uh, because of what the court understands to be biological sex. Um, and there was just, there was no way around it. Um, it. In a sense, maybe not particularly surprising. This was like, again, two lower courts agreed with the uh, petitioners, 
only one of them agreed with the um, the now failed uh, argument in favor of bigotry. So I think that uh, I, I think that kind of gets to what you were uh, discussing a bit. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Um, so as it relates to the dissent, so we had one written by Alito, joined by Thomas, and then there was another by uh, Brett Kavanaugh, sometimes known as uh, Bart O'Kavanaugh. <laughs> you may remember he likes beer. Uh, he does. He, does not he, appa- yeah. he doesn't apparently like gay people very much. Um, I, I read a lot of the Alito opinion. Uh, I mean, what what I what I should note right off the bat as as a transgender woman that was just so astonishing is uh, two words that I see in right wing circles all the time. Uh, they refer to us as transgenders, which is uh, considered offensive, right. and it also just sounds kind of awful. And same along with, uh, they refer to uh, being transgender or the transgender identity as transgenderism. And you can't find those words in in any of this, which I think is uh, astonishing, as is the fact that the court uh, consistently refers to Amy Stevens by female pronouns as Miss Stevens. Uh, It's little things like that that some people may not uh, pick up on immediately, but... um, in terms of just how the transgender debate often gets framed, especially by right-wing media, is is very uh, it's it's heartwarming. I'm very pleased with that. But as it relates to the dissent, um, you want to just describe. So Alito is looking more at a originalist perspective uh, as it relates to the 1964 law. Yeah. So so Alito's dissent has a, a definitely a few striking points. But just just quickly on the, the issue that you brought up, even even Alito again is using the preferred uh, pronouns, um, and this is an, a, a particularly important sticking point because the Fifth Circuit did not. This was the only court that uh, upheld the argument in favor of bigotry. They decided to use to uh, to dead name um, the plaintiff. Uh, so. Uh, this is something that, yeah, like you said, small differences um, or you know s- small evolutions. Uh, something that actually Brett Kavanaugh himself did in a recent opinion. Uh, he refused to use the term "alien" uh, to refer to undocumented immigrants. Um, completely different case, but uh, language matters. Uh, it's important, and the Supreme Court is, uh, as of late, kind of picking up on these things. Um, specifically in regard to Alito's. Uh, there's really no better way to put it than it's a tantrum. Uh, it's 170. <laughs> it's 172 pages long. So, just to start off, the opinion, the dissent is nearly three times, maybe even like close to four times as long as the actual opinion. Uh, usually, these landmark opinions can be sprawling, but this one was relatively uh, brief. Uh, you know, not. 10 pages, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a hundred pages. Uh, and then on top of that, Alito has a, like a 72 page, uh, series of appendices. Um, and this is, you know, totally insider baseball stuff, but because of how long this tantrum was and all these extra documents that he decided to throw in for who knows what reason, uh, the file that, we were trying to download for the first five or 10 minutes was, uh, repeatedly corrupted. Um, pages were out of order. Basically Alito by throwing this temper tantrum kind of overloaded the Supreme court servers for a little while before they fixed the issue. Um, just because he threw in so many, some of them are images of, um, I, I think like EEOC documents and things of that sort. Uh, it, it was just really bizarre. Um, 
not that he came down the way he did, but the way he just decided to um, be graceful in defeat uh, here. Um, that was sarcasm for anybody not picking up on it. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, I guess more um, uh, content-wise, yeah, Alito spent most of the dissent arguing in favor of uh, originalism, saying that this is not co- what Congress could have ever possibly meant. Here's all the reasons why. By the way, this uh, this Democrat who put this in, I guess he was probably a Dixiecrat, uh, though I haven't actually checked up on that, um, he, who put the word sex in. He put it in as a poison pill so that people wouldn't vote for the bill in the first place. So this guy who was definitely far to the right certainly would have never meant anything along those lines. And ultimately that didn't matter. Um, he also has a kind of a, you know, he, he understands that he's being uh, taken shots at by the uh, majority opinion uh, because of the repeated like uh, invocation of textualist arguments and language that's like directly or more or less directly invoking textualism. He, I think the phrase was, he called this opinion a pirate ship. Um, again, exhibiting some classic uh, Alito grace and uh, maturity, uh, basically saying that it sails under the flag of textualism, more or less accusing uh, Gorsuch and the Chief Justice Roberts of kind of abandoning the conservative cause. And, you know, in a sense, yeah, he's right. They did. Um, I don't I don't think the, the movement conservatives who backed these guys are happy with this. In fact, I no, they're not. I'm working on a couple of different articles about the conservative response and uh, the way that Alito handled himself uh, in his dissent uh, when I get off, uh, well, what do we call this, the, the Zencaster with you? I don't know if we're allowed to mention the, uh, oh, the yeah. suite. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, so it's um, it, it's a dissent that is completely graceless Um a temper tantrum in form and content, and ultimately, it's a it's a it's a terminal descent. It's the end of the line for this line of thought, uh, legally at least. The debate is over. Um, the Supreme Court's decision will have extremely wide and far-reaching uh, impact. There are any number of Trump administration policies that have been specifically keyed toward this um, narrow idea that you can do uh, discrimination against uh, LGBTQ uh, individuals because the word sex doesn't apply to them. That's all completely out the window. And on top of everything else, and this is actually the the basis of one of those uh, articles that I'm writing, Alito decided to, in his imminent wisdom, share a list of statutes uh, that are going to be impacted just to prove the slippery slope argument that conservatives are often so fond of uh, mentioning. And so by doing that, what he did was he gave civil rights lawyers basically a checklist, like this is where they start. Not that they don't know already or weren't planning on doing these things, but it's kind of just like, (laughs) um, here, have at it, was what he was saying. He thought he was uh, being clever, but uh, at least too clever by a quarter. So do you, do you have time for one more question? Oh, yeah, absolutely. No problem. So I've seen a couple of Twitter threads on this. I have some some limited legal knowledge. I've had an interest in the court, and my partner is a lawyer. But um, 
can you just talk a little bit about the significance of having Gorsuch uh, be assigned to this case as opposed to either Roberts himself or uh, a senior member of the court such as uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Yeah, well, so there's a few ways I can answer this question. Um, Gorsuch is one of the better writers. Um, so that is not a, um, a fact that's lost on anyone. Um, because this is a landmark uh, decision, kind of a watershed moment in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, uh, you, you want these opinions to kind of have the sweeping language that, again, uh, Scalia was very adept at writing, even when people disagreed with him. Everybody in law school is more or less taught that this guy was the best uh, writer. His prose was like the best. Um, Gorsuch is kind of a similar writer. He can write these kind of sweeping, broad, you know, I don't want to say broad brush, but uh, just these kind of almost, um, the, the language that he uses has an impact and it's obvious that he knows what he's doing. Uh, I, I would just recommend anybody read the first two paragraphs um, before he even goes into even like minimal analysis. They're two introductory paragraphs of this decision. They are basically a masterclass in how to write these kind of wide ranging, extremely impactful, extremely important um, civil rights victories style cases. Um, as for the, the procedural wrangling or however that was decided, um, I've seen some discussion, perhaps it was a trade-off, um, getting, uh, leaving aside, uh, another argument for another justice. Um, maybe they didn't, um, want Ginsburg to put her in premature, uh, and thus maybe not lean so heavily into textualism, um, when, Casting the, uh, I, I guess the, the the framework for how they used to analyze uh, the Civil Rights Act. Uh, I'm not sure about that. Um, I would say you, Ginsburg has not really written a lot of these type of landmark uh, cases for all of her uh, notoriety um, and uh, the uh, the kind of like cult of personality. Uh, the, this, the notorious RBG, like the marketing campaign that was used to protect her against uh, being forced into early retirement by Obama. But now people kind of like they 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 think it's like this organic thing. She's so great. She's she, you know, she's not the worst justice or anything, but she she doesn't typically lend herself to writing these uh, type of monumental, important uh, decisions. Uh, you just go through her record. She doesn't really do it an awful lot. That said, uh, this is, uh, I think maybe the first one that Gorsuch has ever written. Um, you've been on the court for about three years, maybe give or take. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure, uh, exactly, uh, why, uh, the court decided to go down the way it, uh, give the opinion to the person it did, but there were definitely, um, many internal calculations. And I would say that, uh, the writing style and to a lesser degree, keeping the liberal justice framework, which kind of, you know, just they, they acknowledge textualism and originalism uh, as a tool, but they don't use them as the tools. Um, and so uh, maybe keeping uh, the liberals away from putting their own uh, mark on the decision was prominent there. And 
Also, if they had done that, maybe there was no guarantee that they would have gotten Gorsuch and Roberts to uh, agree with them. Uh, I, I kind of doubt that. I think Roberts has been leaning this way for quite a while. Um, and I think uh, Gorsuch will ultimately end up being uh, not this uh, arch-conservative replacement for Scalia that many people are hoping. I, I, I think uh, folks are going to see down the line that uh, he's not a reliable conservative voter, especially on these hot-button issues um, that basically, like I said, take over take over law schools and legal discussions all day long. Uh, the, the website is – we're probably doing – close to a dozen stories on this one uh, Supreme Court case alone. That is unusual, but uh, the decision merits it because, once again, it is important. Uh, it is an exhilarating victory, and, yeah, it's going to have far and wide-reaching implications. Uh, huge setback for the Trump administration and their anti-gay agenda, for sure. Well, uh, that was uh, a really, really thorough and in-depth answer to a Question that I'm not 100% sure even it really has an answer. So thank you. Thank yeah, you for you that. Know, I, I threw as much as I could at it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's always hard to, to ask those kind of questions knowing that, you know, it's not really uh, that easy of an answer. But uh, Colin, you've, you've been uh, so great in explaining this really complicated stuff. And I knew when I literally I'd woken up about 10 minutes before uh, the news broke and I was so excited and I knew that we had to get somebody on to, to talk about this. It's such an important topic. This is a, this is a important day in history for LGBTQ Americans Absolutely. and for all of us worldwide. So Colin, uh, we thank you so much for coming on. This was Thanks uh, for having me on, Ian. Uh, if, you know, I, once again, just read the article. I explained things better there than I think I did here. Definitely rambled a bit and, uh, have me on any time. Um, I can, I can fit, uh, fit the podcast in between uh, between articles, hopefully, most days. So, love to do Perfect. it again. Well, we'll link to that. We'll link to your social media. I know we're, uh, we've been mutuals on Twitter for a while. And yes. uh, thank you. Uh, thank, thanks so much. And to everybody else, uh, go ahead and celebrate. It's a great day. And thank you so much <laughs> for listening. We'll see you next time. Yeah.